ruined my day, right? I was having a great time. I was playing video games with myself. The kids were somewhere else. And yes, uh, can you do the message? Um, uh, I didn't think about it very long. I obviously accepted. I uh, realized that uh, I, I think I've been needing something to push myself and, and further growth. Um, so then, what do you talk about? Um, we're all pretty learned people in here. Uh, most everyone here, no new converts in here. Um, I've uh, been believers for a long time, all your lives, or most of your life, or your adult life. Uh, so, what do you want to talk? What do I want to talk about? Uh, and um, as as I'm maturing, um, uh, those of us uh, are starting to participate more in the readings and the readings of the, the Torah through the first fruits of Zion, which is, their focus is on um, teaching Messianic Jews a faith, but also it's teaching Christians about early Christianity. Uh, in the first century, how, what was the behavior like, uh, or um, what's basically what's the context of, of the world at that time when the message is given? Um, so today, um, the sermon is on to maturity. It's a question mark. So it's it's kind of an evaluation of are 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 we mature, right? So let's start with turning your Bibles to the Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, chapter six. I know the uh, it says one and two in your bulletins. We're actually going to back up. And start at verse 13 of chapter 5, which says, For whoever, uh, sorry, take a deep breath. For everyone who partakes only of milk, which means uh, the doctrinally inexperienced, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, or spiritually mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. On to chapter 6 now. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. If this we will do, and sorry, and this we will do if God permits. So uh, my sermon is uh, based on a book from... uh, Daniel Thomas uh, Lancaster. It's called Elementary Principles. It's the six foundational principles of ancient Jewish Christianity. Um, so basically, it asks the question: are, are you a mature Christian? Uh, the writer of the Book of Hebrews does not think that you are, unless you have mastered those basic principles that we just just read in those first two verses of Hebrews uh, one and two of chapter six. So it means that if you still need someone to teach you the elementary doctrine of Christ. You're unskilled in the word of righteousness and still need milk. So you're therefore not ready for solid food. Uh, Backing up just a couple of verses, we're going to read 11 and 12 of Hebrews also. Concerning him, which is the Messiah, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. The writer wants to give his readers meat and potatoes, right? But fears that they're not ready to digest them. Like an infant, right? At the breast of his mother, uh, they can only handle or digest a certain certain meals, right? Uh, similarly to uh, a reader or an early reader who just learned their ABCs, they, they, they can't appreciate or enjoy a story that has chapters, right? And nuance. Um, uh, and similarly, Paul writes uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 12. You don't have to turn here, but it, it's basically saying the same thing as the Hebrews. It says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, 
not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you're not able. Is that true? Were the readers of the epistle, uh, of the book of Hebrews, really infants in Christ, or even in uh, Corinthians? The book of Hebrews contains some very difficult material, if you read it, right? It doesn't seem elementary. Uh, I'm going to quote Lancaster here. He says that it... um, that a careful reading of the book of Hebrews reveals multiple layers of, of complexity and sophisticated biblical allusions that uh, employ rabbinic methods of argumentation. So uh, the reader assumes, um, so the writer assumes that the reader recognized and understood subtle allusions to Old Testament passages. Right? He's quoting Psalms. He's quoting prophets. Uh, he's quoting the Torah. Um, in this kind of apostolic shorthand, he's not necessarily giving you the quote. He'll say it somewhere. It says somewhere. It says that that type of thing. Um, so what's the spiritual milk that the apostles fed to new believers, right? Uh, what's the baby stuff? What are the elementary teachings? So here, here are the six. We'll repeat them again. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Uh, I'm not going to have time to get through all six of them today. When I started uh, preparing for it and uh, studying and writing and writing, I, I think I'm going to get through two, maybe three today. So this is a part one, I think. So, um, so do we have a good handle on these? Uh, people have less of a clue about these six foundations than the readers of the epistle possessed. Um, the book Elementary Principles presents an introduction to what is essentially the basics of the Christian faith. Um, Christianity was still Jewish back then, mo- mostly Jewish, and then slowly Gentile converts. So uh, Christianity had not yet separated from its Jewish roots and still functioned as a sect or a denomination uh, with, within the larger Judaism. So um, think back in our, in our youth, in our childhoods, in our denominations. We learn the gospel pretty quickly, right? It's, um, there's, there, in fact, there's, it's, it's pretty simple. There's two types of people, right? There are those that are going to hell and those that are going to heaven, right? And to go to hell, you don't have to do anything, right? You, you just live your life and don't live to, uh, by any sort of standard. Uh, and the second group, pretty simple also. The only thing one needs to do is accept Jesus into their heart as his personal Lord and Savior. And we all have our own recollections how this goes and how this teaching went in um, your schools or youth groups and what have you. Um, but once a person accepts Jesus into his heart, we become a Christian. And then your job as a Christian is to save as many people, right? And have them accept Jesus into their hearts. Uh, that gospel's short, it's sweet, and doesn't really require any sort of in-depth reading or knowledge. Uh, you you really don't even have to. In fact, if you read the if you read the Gospels, there's not really that much of a men, mention of accepting Jesus into your heart and going into heaven. In fact, there's not. Right, 89 chapters worth, and it doesn't really refer to that. Uh, so it turns out, if you read the Gospels, um, it comes uh, refers to the coming of the Messianic Age. Um, Messianic Age, uh, as we we know here, is the golden age predicted by all the prophets in which God will gather His people Israel. Restore them to their land by the covenants that he gave them, right? And uh, place his Messiah as king over them. Uh, it turns out that in all the morning and evening services, vacation Bible schools, men's groups, women's group, youth lock-ins, those were my favorite, right? Stay overnight playing games with the youth group. Um, that's not really talked about. We don't talk about the kingdom of God in which to come. But that is the context in which uh, the Hebrews lived, and that's what they understood, um, but it's time that we spend a little bit of time learning the elementary doctrine of the Messiah. So repentance from dead works. I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. 
verses 1 through 13. The parable of the marriage feast. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And again he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated the king's slaves and and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all that they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. When the king king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So in this parable, uh, which you've probably heard before and maybe even studied, um, the king is, of course, uh, our father in heaven, and the wedding feast is for his son. And, uh, of course, we, we, we anticipate being the bride, his bride, right? This church is his bride. Uh, he sends his slaves out who, tend, who end up being the prophets, right? So they go out and they're inviting people, telling them to repent and turn away. And instead, the people kill them, right? Some of the prophets are killed. Some of them are you know, basically not listened to. And so God would punish, punish Israel. And then finally he says, okay, we'll find everybody else, right? Go, go search all the streets, young and old, good and bad, bring them to the wedding feast. And then there the king comes and he's at the feast and he sees someone who's not dressed in wedding clothing attire and he throws them out for there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? We'll, we'll come back to that a little bit. So in this, uh, so I just kind of summarized all that. I've got to figure out where I'm on my notes again. Uh, so Jesus explains, many are called but few are chosen. The first principle in the repentance from dead works is that the basic message of repentance and the first step of the message of the kingdom. It's the good news that Jesus and the apostles preached. Repent because the messianic era or the kingdom of God is near. Repentance means to turn away from sin and start obeying God. Uh, Real repentance is the first step of the gospel, both in regard to presenting the good news of the kingdom, but also in receiving the good news of the kingdom. According to a lot of Bible teachers, repentance from dead works, which is the first principle we're talking about, means to turn away from Judaism. That's at least that's how it's presented in, in churches, right? Or to turn away from the works of the law. They call them dead because they consist of legalism and they can never earn us eternal life, which, which is, is, that part is correct, right? Obeying the Torah doesn't eter, uh, earn us eternal life. And those who, uh, but they argue that, that those who trust in the law or the Torah will be damned. And therefore, that makes them dead works. Uh, but this this sort of modern interpretation shows a bit of a blindness. Um, 
Sorry that I'm reading this. I don't know if I could say it without it. Um, It's also the common Christian interpretation of the book of Hebrews, which is that Paul writes the epistles to warn Jewish Christians from slipping back into Judaism and Torah observance altogether, and that they even argue that the master himself tries to renounce the Torah and the religion of the Jews, and then so anyone who keeps any of the the Torah, the ceremonial commandments, uh, you keep Sabbath, we observe the Jewish commandments, or sorry, the Jewish calendar, uh, we observe the festivals, the dietary laws, Levitical laws, um, purity laws. They talk about the if you believe in the uh, uh, um, returning of the sacrifices in the temple, that that you have missed the elementary teaching of the Messiah, right? So they're teaching that the Torah is a book of dead works, and one must turn away from it. But that that interpreta- interpretation doesn't measure up when we look. So we're going to stay in the book of Matthew and. Uh, turn to chapter 5. You read these verses before. We've read them a lot in here. But it's good to go over them again. Matthew chapter 5. We'll start at verse, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke or letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, right? Whoever gets rid of any of, the, any of the commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say also, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees who are often maligned by Christians, right? That you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, if repentance from dead works doesn't mean to turn away from God's law, what does it mean? Um, Repentance from dead works means repentance from sin. Um, From an apostolic and Jewish perspective, dead works are sin. So, um, let's see, uh, a couple of Old Testament, Older Testament passages Bruce is fond of saying recently. Turn to uh, Numbers, chapter 27, verse 3. We'll, We'll see what the Torah has to say about sin and death. We're going to look at really brief verses. Uh, the first one is in regards to, uh, it's just uh, Numbers 27, chapter 3, uh, where these daughters of a man, um, this, this man did not have any sons, and of course you're supposed to pass down your land to others when you pass away your sons and disperse it out. Um, but these daughters didn't have, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the, there's no law that's saying that they had a right to the land. Okay. Um, and they, so just picking up in verse 3, it says, 27, verse 3, Our father died in the wilderness, and he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin. He had no sons. So um, remember, there's a rebellion against Moses and his leadership, but these, these, uh, these daughters are saying, Our father wasn't, among, wasn't part of that, but he died, but he died in his own sin. He still sinned, Right? Um, so then, let's look over at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Just one verse again. Uh, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. And similarly, in uh, Ezekiel 18, verse 20, it says, uh, The soul whose sins shall die. It has nothing to do... It doesn't... So it, it, it kind of echoes it. It says the father... Um, the son doesn't... is not put to death be, uh, because of his father and vice versa. So it's not the law that is dead, right? It's saying... The texts are telling us that human mortality is the consequence of sin. It's, uh, uh, it's, our, it's our own sin. 
And it's our sin that condemns us. But that's, that's the Old Testament, right? So let's see what the apostles have to say. Let's, uh, so we're going to switch back again. So switch to James chapter 1. Again, we're just going to do a, a couple of verses and then jump to Romans. Forgive me for the Bible sword, sword drill. James 1, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth, say it with me, death. Right? So, then again, we turn to Romans chapter 5. Pick up at verse 12. Is everyone there? It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed uh, when there is no law. Uh, Turn over to 6. We have some verses there. uh, 16 through 23. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that through that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you were slaves of righteousness. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your bodies as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness... That's, that's basically violating the law, the Torah, resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in our sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then uh, deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of these things, there it is again, is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Last verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then um, uh, just one page over, 8 verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So, uh, just in um, reviewing. So when... Um, and James, when, sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Romans 5.12 says, Through sin, and so death, spread to all men because all have sinned. Uh, Romans 6.16 told us that sin leads to death. Romans 8.2 told us that, uh, basically Paul's referring to the concept of sin equals death, but he calls it the law of sin of death. So at the end of uh, Romans 6.23 passage, it sums it up saying, the wages of sin is death. Repentance from sin is the first foundation upon which the good news or the gospel is built. If we preach or teach a gospel without a call to repentance from sin, the gospel is not being taught and our message is not founded on the teachings of Jesus or his apostle. Uh, Lancaster writes, I'm going to quote him here again, Sin is an obstacle to having a fulfilling relationship with the Lord. Sin delays redemption, or ongoing sin, right? It brings exile, it breaks our communion with God and bars us from the redemption and from the messianic area. So sin begets begets death in this world and in the next. So the Bible defines uh, sin as a transgression of the commandments of the Torah, 
specifically those commandments that apply to you, although not all of God's commandments apply to you, right? Some apply to men, some apply to women, some apply to priests, uh, some apply to the Jewish people only. Um, in our churches, we learn that um, sin is only when we violate a Ten Commandment, though, right? And then we're so abs- abstain from different things, right? Um, uh, listening to Jenny, right, this morning, um, um, her niece and nephew uh, claim to be Christians, but they live together before they marry. We see a lot of that in, in the church now today. There's No one has any problem with, well, they're going to get married, so it's okay, right? Or um, just other things that we say, don't do this, don't do that. You know, abstain from drinking and smoking and gambling, um, sometimes dating, right? Going to R-rated movies, all those things. I'm not to say you can't do any of those things, but all those things can lead to um, an addiction to those things and causes then sin in us, right? Um, but we should rid ourselves of those things because as we engage in these things, there ceases to be a difference between us and the rest of the world. Um, the apostles understood that true repentance calls for a complete break with sin and the culture of sin. I'm going to ask you to turn to Galatians again. Now again, I'm going to ask you to turn again. So, turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're here given a list of things that we're supposed to avoid, right? So, there's the Torah, and then there's other things that uh, we're um, told to abstain from. So, verses 19 through 21. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, and they are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the same thing about heaven, right? This is about the kingdom of God that is to come. Um, so Paul gives us a list of things that are off the list for us. Um, and at the time they're surrounded, when he's writing this book, he's surrounded by a Roman culture. Um, but it says there, it says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That sure doesn't sound like a gospel of just grace. Like you can't just do whatever, do what you want, right? You still have to abstain from these things once you've come to the Lord. Uh, we're not just justified by faith and not by works, right? So it doesn't. Say, it just sounds a lot like legalism. Is, is his argument, right? And that's the argument against obeying the law and not repenting. Is that well? Aren't we worried about being legalists and not really living by the Spirit, right? But Jesus says in Matthew five verse twenty, you don't have to turn there. But he says, "I tell you, unless your righteousness—we already read it. Sorry—that your obedience to Torah means exceeds if your." Righteousness succeeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will, if, unless it doesn't, sorry, I'm tripping over my words, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you don't have to flip again. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, through 10, it says that those who do the things that we write in the Galatians passage, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we're seeing it over and over again. If you um, live according to your flesh and live according to the world, we don't inherit the kingdom of God. So it's not about earning our salvation, but it is a question of repenting. Uh, a Christian who persists in their sin deceives themselves. The Apostle John makes himself to be a legalist too um, when he says that, right? So let's turn to, uh, you don't have, never mind, I'll just read it again. First uh, John, uh, no, we got to turn, sorry. First John, chapter 3. I said we have to turn there because I didn't type it out. So, First John, chapter 3. We'll pick up at verse 6 when I see pages are done turning. Okay. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, 
Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. And just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his sin abides in him. It lives in him, right? And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, and and the apostles uh, and Jesus are talking about righteousness as an obedience to the law, obedience to Torah, okay? Um, is the, Those who do not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Okay, um, so whoever practices righteousness is righteous. It's not to say that we don't have sin, Right? Watch anyone us. Watch anyone of us for a day. Watch me for a whole day. I sin. Right? You'll see it pretty clear. Right? But John one verse eight says, "If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us." So we can stumble. We do at times succumb to temptation. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, deliberately. Uh, when we do, we need to confess the sin, the misdeed, or renounce it and turn away from it. Because no one who abides in Christ is supposed to keep on sinning. Or else we make him out to be a liar than the truth, as John tells us, is not in us. Um, so it doesn't sound like a just come as you are and stay as you are, right? So come to the Lord, repent from your sin. But that isn't, it's not always popular in churches or uh, in, in the evangelical movement. But uh, it's an ongoing process. Um, unless you turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 through 9, we're going to finish the parable and see why uh, that man was cast out of the wedding feast. So Revelation chapter 19, picking up at verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So the church is ready. The Lord is coming to claim them, claim his bride. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Right? So it's, it's our obedience, it's our turning away from sin, um, and, o- and obeying. Uh, where did I go? And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. So that man thought he could be part of the kingdom without repenting for the fine clothing are our righteous deeds. The righteous deeds we already have learned are found in the obedience to his commandments, his law, his Torah, and the other things that Paul has told us to abstain from, or in the apostles. So it's our sin that are the dead works, and it's not the law. So next, the second step. Let's see how am I doing on time. Okay, we'll keep going. Second step, faith toward God. A lot of people claim to believe in God. In fact, uh, a recent poll that he quotes says that 9 in 10 Americans say that they believe in God. Um, James tells us that even the demons believe that God is one, and they shudder, but they don't obey. They're not obedient is the problem, right? So how is the second fundamental teaching, which is faith toward God, found in Hebrews, different from believing that there is a God? The rabbis considered belief in God to be the first of the Ten Commandments. And uh, those of us who are uh, uh, doing the first fruits of Zion, uh, unroll the Torah scroll, see that um, in Judaism, they say that when... When Moses writes, or when God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, say, that's what they call the first of the Ten Commandments. It's just, uh, what do we call it? Um, his introduction, essentially, right? Or uh, the title to a letter, right? That's the first commandment, that God is. Okay? 
Um, the rabbis considered belief in God to be the first one, and those of us that are doing the unraveling... Sorry, what am I repeating myself? Uh, let's see. So the, the statement is that he is. That there is a God was universal across all forms of Judaism, including both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They believe that there was a God. Uh, the Greek translate the faith concept of faith toward God as pisteos epitheon, but we might translate it better as faith on God or believing upon God, or which uh, kind of gives us understanding of a, uh, a reliance on him, right? So, we already said, um, I'm not going to say that because I already said that about the demons. Um, Dr. Stokes has spent a lot, quite a lot of time recently in different sermons about talking about faith, which is a hoping of anticipation or a trusting in the promises of God. Um, talking about faith or hoping with anticipation, right? Hebrews 11 says, begins with, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, and then he gives example of, or after example of those who... Uh, lived their faith, died in the faith without receiving any of any of their promises, or some of their promises, or most of their promises, depending on the example. Um, faith on God implies confidence that He will keep the promises that He has made, despite our lack of evidence. Sometimes, uh, chiefly, His promises about the coming of the Messiah, the final redemption, the resurrection of the dead, the kingdom of heaven, and the world to come. Um, in Hebrews 11.6, he says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And uh, 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 Lancaster says that this is what the fear of the Lord is. It's that knowing that God rewards our obedience but also punishes our sin. All right, so where does uh, Jesus fit into this faith faith on God or faith toward God fit in? Uh, the apostles had faith in all these things, like the kingdom of heaven on earth, on the basis that God had provided direct evidence and the beginning of his fulfillment to the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah and the evidence of his resurrection from the dead. So that's what they placed their faith in, right? That's what we see in the New Testament a little bit more. Um, Lancaster writes, I'm going to quote him again, to believe in Jesus meant to believe that he is the promised Messiah, who died to bear the punishment of sin, and who rose as the first fruits of the coming resurrection, providing a sure token of the coming kingdom of God on earth. So the apostles were teaching that if God kept his promise as and had revealed his Messiah, right, then he's reliable to deliver the rest of his promises. So if he gave, if he promised us a, a Messiah and gave it to us, then he's, reli- he's reliable to, to keep the rest of them. Uh, the apostles were so sure of their proclamation of Jesus' resurrection that they weaved in mention of him whenever they could, whenever they mentioned God. Um, so specifically, uh, you can look them up or not, but um, Romans 1, 7 and 8, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 1 through 4, 2 Corinthians 1, 2 through 4, Peter, James, Peter John, James, um, uh, they all spe- specifically in their introductions kind of go, they give thanks to God through Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. If they're giving credit to God, they include Jesus in it, in their statements of faith. Or in their blessings or their wishings, whatever he's writing about. Uh, it's almost like they can no longer speak of God without um, uh, including their experience uh, with Jesus. Uh, so Jesus' teachings himself on faith is more about reliance on God. So he reminded us in his Sermon on the Mount to have a faith of have faith like the mustard seed, right? Uh, to trust God with his provisions, with our provisions. Uh, so don't worry about what you eat, what you drink, or what you wear. The birds don't worry about these things, right? Um, he then even sends disciples on a, a brief little, we call, well, I'll call it a mission trip, right? Um, so to speak, and tells them not to take spare clothing, 
right? Or don't take extra food, don't take extra money because I'm going to um, provide for you. So there's that faith in God that he's, he's a reliance on God, that he's going to take care of us. So we go from a repentant, repentance of dead works to a faith by obedience. Faith on God is a transforming faith. Habakkuk 2.4, and then Paul quotes him also in Romans 1-7 through where he says, the righteous live by faith. Uh, we don't often put faith in God and obedience to God together, but um, uh, there are passages that, that uh, do that uh, in addition to. Uh, if you could, we'll read a, another passage. If you're still in the book of Romans, I hope turn to it if you're not there. Romans 16, verses 25 and 26. It says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations, leading to obedience of faith. So faith requires repentance and a renouncing of sin because God, the God of the Bible, and not one that our, our society has created, uh, because the God of the Bible punishes sin. Both the Old and New Testament told us that, right? In the Old Testament, we, they died in their faith, and in the New Testament, it said the same thing, that those who practice righteousness uh, get reward, and those who practice sin uh, receive their punishment. Um, so faith requires obedience and good works, not because these works save us, right? Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is what saves us. But because our God rewards righteousness, uh, the Messiah who suffered on behalf is the source of eternal salvation for all who believe. Um, what am I doing? Okay, okay, 33 minutes. Okay, uh, the third one, uh, I'm going to keep going, if that's okay. Okay, everyone all right? I'm not boring anyone. Not too bad. All right, so the third one is uh, instruction about the washings. That subject, as I started reading, was there was too much. And he starts weaving and talking about the DDK, which Dr. Stokes has talked about. Um, but there really is just too much research. That's almost like its own sermon in itself, which I I'll, maybe I'll give it a try at it. So we're going to skip the third one for today uh, in talking and uh, move to laying on of hands. So the first three foundations, uh, there's sort of a, pro- a progression if you're a new believer, right? They hear the gospel of repentance, so they repent of their sins. Um, then we play, that, that person places their faith in God through the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, then they would receive basic instruction, or uh, sorry, this is in the third section. They receive instruction or a catechism before they would undergo an immersion or a baptism. Um, and then we have, then we would see in Scripture, a laying on of hands. So there are different types of laying on of hands, right? There's uh, to bestow blessings, and under those, there's he bestows it on children, disciples, petitioners, right? The sick. Uh, the second type of laying on of hands is a ritual substitution, uh, which means that you're laying your hands on something that is taking your place, and we'll talk about those specifics. And then. Um, uh, the other one, which probably would come to mind already, is an ordination, right? Passing on authority from one person to the next, or one person to the next group, as we'll see that. So bestowing blessings, we'll start there. Um, remember, Jacob blesses his sons before he dies, and on the basis of that, 
uh, a traditional Sabbath celebration. Uh, fathers will bless their children, they'll bless their daughters, was saying, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh to a boy, or maybe like Ruth and like Esther if you were a girl. Right? These people are, um, or they might say somebody else's name, right? People who are strong in their faith. Um, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus blesses children. In both the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, found in uh, 19, Matthew 19, verse 13, and Mark 10, verses 13 and 16, uh, we're told that um, people were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And he took them in his arms, it says, and blessed them, laying hands on them, and then he would pray over them. And then from there, Jewish uh, Judaism and Jewish people started conferring prayers uh, sorry, before that, for healing in the same way. So in Mark 5.23, a synagogue official from the region of Capernaum asked Jesus, come and lay hands on my daughter, right? She's sick, so that she may be made well and alive. Um, uh, Lancaster says that according to a legend in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Abraham once healed the king of Egypt by laying his hands on Pharaoh's head. Uh, it's possible from this story that that's where the laying on the hands of the sick may have actually begun. Uh, in the book of Acts, Ananias of Damascus lays his hands on Paul after Jesus stops Paul on the way there to tell him to stop persecuting him. Uh, so Ananias, so he tells Paul to go to Ananias. He prays for Paul and he recovers his sight. Oh, also in Acts 28, verse 8, uh, Paul visits a man in Malta and he is healed from his fever and his dysentery. James 5, verse 14 says, he writes, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the assembly and let them pray for him. Uh, there's a second type, which is uh, ritual substitution. Uh, in, uh, I think it's Leviticus 1, 1 through 4. If you don't mind, we'll turn that. Turn there and read it briefly. So Leviticus 1. And the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. It is his offering, uh, sorry, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Verse 4 here. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Um, so the Israelites laid their hands upon, um, sorry, sorry. So the worshiper, um, because they're being op- obedient to the commandments, right? He's regarding the animal sacrifice as a surrogate for his own sin. Um, the Hebrew word for laying on of hands is semika, I think that's how it's pronounced. And the act of semika implied a physical leaning on the animal. It's not just, it's Gross, right? But it's it's you're putting all the weight on the person, can, um, putting all your sin on it, and in and some occasions conf- confessing the sin out loud, getting rid of it. It's taking atonement from my place. Okay. Um, so there's also a ritual substitution for the Levites in Numbers eight, nine, and ten. The Israelites laid hands upon the Levites as substitutes for them. Right when. Um, the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, right? There's the Passover and the blood on the lamb and the firstborn of Egypt are are, um, are are killed, right? And so God says, well, because of that, you owe me your firstborn. Um, and instead of taking a firstborn from every, every family or, or tribe, what they do is they designate the tribe of Levite for them. So 
in Numbers 8, 9, and 10, the Israelites laid hands upon the Levites as substitutes for them. Um, and then, uh, let's see. But instead of taking... Uh, I said that already. Okay. Uh, then the third part, ordination. Uh, not long before Moses died, he asked the Lord to appoint a successor for him. So if you're still in Numbers, you can see, look, turn there or not. Uh, in Numbers 27, 18 through 20, he tells Moses to take Joshua, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And then uh, later on the verse, it, sa- it says, and invest him with some of your authority. Similarly, in Numbers eleven sixteen through uh, 17, some of Moses' spirit and authority is given over to 70 elders. Remember, uh, the workload of Moses got to be too great, uh, and it was advised to him by Jethro to take on um, uh, those who could help him, right, to be judges. And those people would become, uh, they would uh, call out 70 elders, and those would later be known as the Sanhedrin, right? Um, so they would have disciples or trained men, uh, to train themselves, and they would lay hands on them. So they laid hands on those men. I think I skipped that part. So uh, the people of Israel laid hands on the Levites. They laid hands on those uh, those elders, Moses would, to impart some of his spirit, some of his authority on them. Um, and then later, um, as it's being passed down to generation, they would have disciples or men to train themselves, and so they would lay hands on those people, forming kind of like this uh, continuous chain uh, and they called the chain of ordination from Moses down to even through the apostles, right? So this was not a, um, a tradition that would have gone away. It just would have kept on going, lay hands on the, on the new leaders, right? Give that, we're asking that God give them the wisdom of Moses. Um, so this is why in Matthew 23, verse 2, that the Pharisees and the sages of the Sanhedrin, that Jesus says that the Pharisees and the sages of the Sanhedrin sat in the chair of Moses. He, he doesn't use it in a negative form. Um, the rabbis took this transformation very seriously, whereas unless a student received ordination from a previous generation, from a sage or a scholar, they couldn't serve as a judge uh, of sorts in a sort of a Torah club. So they had to receive ordination laying on of hands and blessings first. Uh, in the book of Acts, 6 verse 6, the Jerusalem community of believers in Yeshua became become, uh, too large for the 11 apostles to handle the administration and the taking care of the widows and making sure everyone has food and and so forth. And um, so then they appoint seven deacons to handle that. And they prayed and laid hands on them to confer blessing and authority. In Acts 13, verse 3, before Paul and Barnabas are sent out, the believers of Antioch lay their hands on them, conferring blessing and authority for their work. Uh, Paul writes to Titus uh, in 1, verse 5, to appoint leaders in every town, um, lay hands on them, like put someone else in authority, right? This, this ordination process. Um, it, what, interesting, in First Timothy, Paul's writing to him, in chapter 5, verse 22, he warns Timothy not to be too hasty in the laying on of hands, right? So there should be a testing of people, and we read that, right? There's a testing to make sure that um, these men are proper to be in authority over you as a community. So don't be too quick to join a, uh, to appoint an elder. Almost done. Uh, last part, um, imparting authority in the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, when they began baptizing and blessing new converts, it was also to transfer the Holy Spirit from themselves onto a new believer. Uh, Jesus does the same in Matthew 10 when uh, he sends the disciples out. I already talked about. Uh, he gives them authority to cast out demons and heal every kind of disease. So it's not just an authority. It's the Spirit. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the ability to heal in some cases. Uh, at Pentecost, the Lord took his Holy Spirit that was on Jesus and transferred it to the apostles. Um, so there are two uh, separate occasions in the book of Acts 
uh, where people believed in Jesus and his resurrection, but either hadn't been had been had a baptism of John's repentance, or um, believed in Jesus and had been baptized, but they hadn't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in both those cases. Um, either um, one time it's Peter and John, the other time it's Paul. Uh, they lay hands on them, and that group would receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, two two things uh, to note here: laying on of hands ordinarily followed immediately after baptism, and the laying on of hands conferred the Holy Spirit. If you remember um, at uh, Berna and Jackie's baptism, right, they went in the water first, and then when they came up, uh, Doctor Stokes uh, p- put a blessing on them. I don't recall if he actually physically touched them. Um, maybe some of you recall that picture better than I do, but that was part of it, right? The um, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, come up and put a blessing on them to encourage them and um, try to uh, go forth and be a, a good believer. I, whatever, you know. um, so think of it more like a legal ceremony because there wasn't uh, always a dramatic manifestation of God's Spirit, like speaking in tongues every time. Um, but it's about acknowledging a new disciple and then praying on his behalf and then asking God to bestow him. So in conclusion... Uh, the apostles followed, it seems that they followed this general progression for new believers. So, a person should repent from their sin. Um, they should have faith towards God in, a, in, a, in an observance sort of way, right? In an obedience kind of way. And that faith would be through, through Jesus, right? Then there would be an instruction about Jesus, which we didn't talk about so much, about, but followed by an immersion in Jesus' name, which may have included a fast. Uh, I read this part, we'll get to it next time, but... Um, the person, it's, it was typical at that time for that person to fast before they underwent their baptism. It was encouraged that the person who baptized them would also fast. And even if you were in, uh, in the audience just watching, you would be encouraged to fast and to pray in, in, in preparation for that person. Uh, person, sorry. And then uh, the fourth part, the laying on of hands to ordain or disciple and confer the Spirit. We don't have any new converts in this congregation, but it's important that as Israel and groups like First Fruits of Zion um, recover what early Messianic Judaism looks like, we continue to come alongside them and support them, and we may learn something new. I don't know if you learned anything new today. Um, maybe not. Maybe we're already mature in this place. That's okay. Maybe we... Um, that's, that was my hope. So, um, I plan on finishing it. I don't know when, but uh, hopefully not too soon, giving a little more time this time. Um, but we we you pray with me, and then we'll ask the kids to come in. Blessed are you, O Lord.